This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. The more that population health thinking is directly related to contracts, it's really, frankly, a winning message for employers. No employer wants to stand up in front of their employees and say, we pick the cheapest, we don't really care about quality, and we're just going for the lowest number. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Trevor Durin. Today, I'm joined by two members of our direct-to-employer team, MJ Berg and Ben Gazaway, to share their insights and experience working with both health systems and employers to find common ground and forge mutually beneficial partnerships. I asked them to join because I continue to hear that D2E is a strategy that many health systems talk about, but there's huge variation in both historical sophistication of health systems, in where they think opportunities lie in their markets, and in what they're trying to pursue. So I wanted to hear from the experts what many of the leading systems they're working with are thinking about in this space, and more importantly, what do our employer partners want and how do they need health system partners to help deliver on their healthcare goals for their employees? Thank you both so much for joining today. MJ, I'm going to go to you first. How has employers thinking about working directly with health systems evolved? Is it still focused all about cost, especially in today's environment, or is that focus shifting a little bit? I'd say that most sophisticated, large, self-funded employers are very focused on long-term value. They have operated with a sense of urgency that they haven't always found available through working with conventional channels like their health plan partners. There is an increased interest by employers to partner with health systems in a way that allows them to develop unique programs supported by pay-for-value compensation that are really focused on outcomes so that there's really alignment that the physicians and the hospitals will do better when the patients get better care. That's definitely a way that they're trying to structure. MJ, has this conversation elevated within employers beyond the benefits team to be more of a strategic level from the C-suite leadership and employers? Yes, I would say that there's a great trend in that direction. Most employers now are looking at the very highest level. The C-suite is very engaged. Aside from salaries, benefits are the second most expensive line of cost that any employer has. The CFO is obviously very invested. The chief human resources officer is very invested as employers try to redefine the new employment brand. How do you attract? How do you retain? How do you get the loyalty? And then how do you create a productivity benefit that really allows you to be competitive in whatever business that you're in? In the past, at least in my experience, what I saw, those discussions often ended up around national center of excellence programs. What other offerings are getting traction today or do you see kind of gaining interest from employers? Some employers still look up to the national center of excellence programs, but the number of them are fewer and fewer. Many employers have pivoted away from national programs because they were not based on any pay-for-value compensation. They would allow their employees to get care at a single site nationally and would offer money to offset travel, but that was about it. 
those programs actually didn't get as much traction or as much engagement as employers had hoped. So while the marquee value was there, the truth of the matter is that those programs didn't really improve quality or cost for employers. Moving those programs to local markets has shifted employers and they're now saying, well, we don't have to pay money to travel. Why don't we set up certain types of surgery so that we create financial incentives for patients to get care with the providers that we know are of the highest quality? And many employers are waiving cost sharing to make that a financial benefit and to have a strong incentive to use a high quality provider. There is a lot of emphasis just on quality and value. And a couple other ways that that plays out is in the idea of primary care. For a long time, employers stepped away from promoting, valuing, or requiring their employees to choose a primary care physician. But increasingly, they are entertaining models where you actually do designate or align with a primary care physician, not as a gatekeeper or an impediment to care, but really as a more effective way to manage and organize care. There's a lot of information out there that these savvy employers are looking at that really show that people who work with a primary care physician have greater adherence to preventive care, have fewer gaps in care, and in fact are far more satisfied overall than people who get care from this provider for this condition, another provider for another condition. So the ability of that physician to organize and see the whole patient is is really powerful and employers are finding new ways to embrace that. Virtual care is also an area that employers are focused on. Virtual care didn't come about under COVID, but it really flourished under COVID. And all of a sudden, the program that was for the traveling person on the road who didn't feel well in a hotel room or the parent who was at home in the middle of the night with the child, all of a sudden those virtual visits have a whole different meaning. And it's a very good first point of entree for many conditions. And particular, virtual care has really been a boon in the area of mental health. There's been far greater compliance and people stick to their treatment regimens using the comfort and privacy of home for that type of care. We really expect to see a lot more proliferation of virtual care, not to supplant going to the doctor in person. There are still plenty of instances in which you need to physically be examined by the physician, but there are other types of care that being in the virtual channel doesn't diminish or take anything away from that experience. Ben, let's flip to the health system perspective. Outline what the direct-to-employer landscape looks like across the way different health systems are approaching it. How should health systems that are either stepping their toe in or who have tried a little bit move more aggressively into direct-to-employer? We get to work with a lot of different health systems that are engaged in direct-to-employer work in a number of ways. Some have started out and dipped their toe in the water with something very local, like maybe an on-site or a near-site clinic, or maybe it's working with a local employer around executive physicals or drug screenings for new employees, that kind of thing. 
other groups have gone deeper in terms of engaging local and regional employers around things like narrow network offerings. Maybe it's leveraging an existing ACO infrastructure or maybe even a, a provider-sponsored health plan infrastructure to offer more of a narrow network to employers in their communities. We're also seeing groups offer local and regional employers bundled pricing through centers of excellence for things like joint procedures, even maternity bundles you're starting to see grow in popularity. It's when you have a health system that's wanting to move beyond these local and regional plays that you start to see issues of scale really come to the forefront. Everybody wants to be that destination center of excellence for that jumbo or national employer. But the truth really is that most employers employers that are big and have lives spread across the country don't want to do a slice offering in each market where they have lives. They're just not going to deploy some benefit differential to one group of employees but not to all of them. This is where you start to see conveners and national surgical networks really step in and give these health systems a way of engaging jumbo national employers in a way that really they wouldn't have had access to these employers otherwise. Regardless of where a health system is on that game board relative to their direct-to-employer strategy, one key capability that's becoming more and more important is the ability to tell their quality and outcome story to employers in a way that's meaningful for employers. We see a lot of this in our direct-to-employer focus at Vizient, where we do a lot of analytic support for health systems that are participating in our clinical database. Shout out to the CDB team and all their hard work. But really to tell a quality story in a way that's meaningful to employers and differentiated in their market. Ben, one thing you mentioned that I want to loop back to is intermediaries, some new players. Seems like health systems need to have a grasp on what that landscape looks like, who the big players are, and what spaces they're playing in. Absolutely. I would say over the past five, 10 years, you've really seen a lot of growth in this area. You've seen a rise in a lot of these surgical networks. You've seen a rise in what are called super TPAs, who are groups looking to piecemeal together a regional network and then sell that to employers. We've kicked the tires on a lot of these types of groups, and they are all built differently. Some are working with employers that are very cost conscious. They're very price sensitive, while other conveners take more of a savings through quality approach where they only work with that top quartile of surgeons and in effect cost through quality. Some are building networks and they're out looking for delivery sites, while others are really built more around that single case agreement where they'll shop a single surgical procedure across multiple providers. Some take a PPO approach where it's more delivery sites is better, while others work really exclusively with one provider in a market. So you really do see it across the board, lots of different approaches to this space. For those members that are being approached by TPAs and other groups that are wanting to form that regional narrow network, a really important question to ask or to think about is that of ownership. Are they owned by one of the carriers? Are they owned by a private equity firm? These are really, really important things to tease out. There's been a lot of activities, a lot of mergers and acquisitions in this space. And that's definitely something that a health system would want to consider when they're looking at who to partner with in this space. Regardless of whether you're working with a surgical network or a super TPA, I would just highlight two really important questions. Number one is how are they approaching quality? Do they incorporate clinical data? 
or are they relying exclusively on claims data from clearinghouses or data vendors? Is it some proprietary algorithm built on some third-party rating system, or is it transparent? And then number two, what is their track record when it comes to steerage? Let's be honest here. Without steerage, the numbers don't work. This is a lot of work to put in if it's a barely a trickle of patient volumes coming through. The group you're talking to, are they pushing employer clients to waive co-pays and deductibles like MJ talked about, which candidly is table stakes these days? What percentage of their book of business includes mandatory models where patients are required to have their services performed at a COE, a centers of excellence? Without the steerage, the numbers don't work no matter who you're talking to. That's a great takeaway. Great point. I'm going to come back to something both of you mentioned. Ben, you mentioned it in terms of telling a good story that's going to be told in a way that employers are going to understand, not in the way healthcare dorks like us might tell the story, but in a way that normal people are going to understand it. And MJ, you mentioned that employers aren't totally focused on cost. If you can tell a good value story, that's going to resonate too. Talk more about that. What kind of quality outcomes and quality stories are resonating the best with employers and that have a mutual benefit for health systems too? employers are looking to quantify value over time. And what they want to understand is they like to have a snapshot of their covered population to understand how many different health buckets. Are these the generally healthy people? Are these people with whom they look like they have some lifestyle challenges that if we can offer some programs to help them make better life choices that could prevent things? You'll have your cohort of the population that has babies and things that are very routine, not necessarily chronic or recurring, but more episodic. And that's a normal distribution. Increasingly, employers are focused on those high cost claimants as well as people with chronic illnesses because those are the people that consistently year in, year out, drive a lot of cost for the organization. Focusing on value and quality is a good long-term strategy, particularly for employers who enjoy a fairly stable workforce. If they don't have a lot of turnover in their organization, people just age in place. And we all know that as we age, we may consume more health care. An employer with a stable population has a very long-term investment mindset that's different perhaps than an employer who has a very high turnover rate. And this week's employee may not even be around two months from now. Very different. The long-term play on value, and if you focus on quality, the price will come along because value is really making sure that the right people get the right treatment at the right time in the right setting. That's really what an employer is going for health systems that can engage with employers on that basis to really play that long haul game, that's a win-win. And the more facility that a health system has in talking about their success in managing a cohort of people, health systems and hospitals are very good at telling a patient-specific story, but less facile at describing an entire population. The more that population health thinking is able, and that's going to be directly related to contracts where that matters, and financially there will be some measurement on pay for value. 
it's really, frankly, a winning message for employers. No employer wants to stand up in front of their employees and say, we picked the cheapest. We don't really care about quality and we're just going for the lowest number in today's environment. That is not a compelling message and not one that will engender respect, that will help employees to be engaged employers and health systems, they live in the same communities together. And what does an employer want but healthy people who can come to work, that can be fully present, that can be fully engaged in their work, because productive employees are a competitive advantage. Health systems also want to produce healthy people in their communities who are an asset to employers. There's so much that each can gain by focusing on the health of an entire population. That's really good. That's a great perspective from the employer side. Ben, bring it around to how health systems should think about what the future of direct employer is going to look like. SG2 is a forecasting company, so you got to try and get out the crystal ball and say, what's the next generation of direct employer partnerships going to look like? I'll start by giving a summary statement of what I think and what we're seeing from a future perspective, along with really two very specific trends that I want to highlight. I would just say this overall, there's a lot of parties that have a very strong financial interest in keeping employers and health systems at arm's length. We're seeing medical trend now projected to grow between 7 and 10% in 2023, which is a very high number that a lot of employers are talking about. And you're seeing the Consolidations Appropriations Act that was recently passed now giving employers both deeper insight and deeper accountability into how they're spending their healthcare dollars. The result of this cocktail of factors is that you're starting to see increasing appetite on the part of employers for for more direct contracts, for more direct arrangements with providers. And this is honestly, this is really good news for those health systems that are poised and committed to exploring this. I want to point out really two quick trends that we're seeing. Number one, MJ already talked about this, and that is the growth in primary care as a focus. This isn't new. Anyone who's been around value-based care in the provider world has heard the mantra of primary care as the quarterback of patient care. What's different here is that employers are really pushing on advanced primary care as a vehicle for holistic patient care and virtual primary care as a way of addressing access and convenience. This is good news for those that have invested much time, talent, and treasure into their ACO infrastructures. The question for the providers is what kind of new investments are going to need to be made in things like analytics to be able to tell that quality story in a compelling way, and then integration with all of the different tool sets that an employer or a TPA might bring to the table. Those are both going to be really important factors in that primary care world. The second one that I want to highlight is in oncology. I'm not sure if you saw it, but this past spring, the Business Group on Health published an article highlighting oncology is now the number one highest area of healthcare spend for employers. And this is huge. We're seeing a rise in surgical networks and second opinion vendors and solutions that are all focused on addressing oncology and oncology bundles. Now, as you can imagine, taking risk on a longitudinal oncology bundle is not for the faint of heart. There's a lot that goes into it. 
at Vizio, we're seeing an uptick in requests for analytic support, for pricing support when it comes to these kinds of bundles, as well as your more traditional COE bundles like Join and Spine and Cardiac and Bariatric. Any health system out there that is looking to add direct-to-employer programming to their growth strategy, or maybe just expanding the work they're already doing, whether it's operational or analytic or business development support, we have a team ready to help and to help get our health system members really further, faster when it comes to direct contracting. It's an important topic and look forward to having more conversations on this in the days ahead. MJ and Ben, I knew tapping into your expertise was going to be really valuable for our listeners to hear. So thanks so much for giving us a quick run through of what the space is looking like and where you think it's going. I really look forward to hearing from you again on SG2 Perspectives. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us and or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at SG2 Healthcare. And if you want to talk more about innovative healthcare strategies, you can always email me at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Finally, SG2's a Vizient company, and there are a bunch of Vizient podcasts that you might like. You can find them at Vizient backslash podcasts. Have a great day.